an anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 441, submission number 731, The Good Life. The Good Life, in 1994, aired on NBC from January 3rd of 1994 to April 12th of 1994, or 13 episodes, three shy of the crock block. Now, this is the fifth episode dealing with a subject originating in 1994. The others are the 1994 Sailor Moon pilot, obviously, The Critic, Thunder in Paradise, and The Baseball Network. And since I brought up Thunder in Paradise, that means I have to mention it. Jizzle Drizzle. <laughs> I was thinking you were going to mention the CDI game, but you went uh, the better route. Now, this is the, I believe, fourth show that premieres in our continuity from January 3rd. Of course, the others were the three game shows we covered that premiered on January 3rd, 1983 from last year. But I noticed something. We have a show that ended on January 3rd, and that show from 1975 that ended was Winning Streak that we covered in the Bill Cullen Centennial. Which makes sense because one of the people on this show later hosted a game show that was originally hosted by Bill Cullen. This will all make sense in the course of the next hour or so. Gentlemen, first and foremost, Happy New Year to you. We're starting our fifth year of shows. And we're at, what, about four years and three months, so we're not at five years yet, but we're getting there. And I want to start off this year by talking about this show. Coincidentally, on Wednesday of this week, we'll mark the 30th anniversary of its debut. Coincidentally. Uh, I really didn't plan on being that way. I just wanted to cover this show because I loved it back in the day. I know some feelings may be mixed on it around here, but such is the life. So 1993-1994 NBC. It's a bit of a state of flux, if you will. Because if you look what ended in 92 and 93, Mr. Black's show is gone for better or for worse, and Night Court's gone, OG we're talking about, obviously, and Cheers ended in 93. So now NBC's sort of in a quasi-rebuilding mode. Yes, they had some shows. They did have 
one of Greg's favorite shows, I know this much, Mad About You. No. It's Seinfeld, silly. They had that too. They had Law and Order, obviously. The original Frasier is in its first season. I was going to add that, absolutely. And Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is still going strong. And also Blossom. Whoa, whoa. Oh, thank you. I didn't expect that. I should have, but I didn't. But still, you're missing the big anchors that you had for the last, essentially, decade. No Night Court. No Mr. Black Show. No Cheers. So maybe they're trying to find some new shows that might work out. And they had some successes with a few of them. Talking about the John Larroquette show. I mean, that went for over three seasons, uh, almost four seasons, but it ended like six episodes into the fourth season for whatever reason. And oh, how could we forget Unsolved Mysteries? NBC loved the Unsolved Mysteries back in the day. Oh, and also, I'm sorry, we didn't mention this show, but there was a little show on NBC called Wings. Oh, that's right. Can you believe, guys? 141 episodes ago. And I can't believe I never mentioned it before that. How silly of me. But it's been 141 episodes since the entire world found out that I love Wings. Why do you love Wings so much? It made Tony Shalhoub's career. Come on. Just ask Glenn Quagmire. Man's not wrong. So one of the new entries in 93-94, and this was like a mid-season replacement of sorts, was a working man's comedy, is the best way I'd describe it. It was set in a workplace, and uh, is basically uh, a sitcom about a middle manager at a distribution warehouse, a locked distribution warehouse, of all things, in Chicago. And it focused on his home life, but also... His career life as well. His life at the lock distribution warehouse. And when I saw this, I did see some similarities to some future shows, which we'll get into later. There are connections here. When I saw this 30 years ago, I just absolutely fell in love with it. It's like, this is the greatest show on TV. It's got to last forever, or maybe not forever, but let's say the usual six seasons in a movie, as Greg would say. And it was gone in three months. A darn shame. So who starred in this working man comedy? We had uh, playing the lead character. A person named John Bowman. Was played by comedian John Caponera. And as myself and Greg and, and Chico talked about before we started recording, there's one really big thing John Capernera is known for. And Greg, if you're there, I'd love to hear you chime in with it. Hi, everybody. Harry Carey here. We got a great game in our heads here on WGN Monday between the Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies. Yes. Uh, <laughs> why the Phillies? Just curious. Well, I don't know. I just bought Mike Schmidt for some reason. Cubs win! Cubs win! Hi! Look at the guy in the sombrero! 
Hi, everybody. Look at John Crook. I hear he wants to be a siren one day. I'm a Cubs fan and a button man. Don't tell me you guys don't remember those ads from like 35, I remember, 40 I years ago. <laughs> I remember it. One of my Chicago Cubs yearbooks from the early 90s on the back of it has Harry with the line, I'm a Cub fan and a Bud man. Oh, they played those during all the Cubs games on WGN back in the day. That's what I remember him from, uh, for better or for worse. Now, I shouldn't say the only thing. He's, he's a legendary announcer, but I just remember, like, 11, 12-year-old me seeing Harry Carey in the ads pitching the Cubs, but also... He's not just a Cubs fan. He's a Bud man. Cubs fan and a Bud man. Back in the summer of 89, when I was living in Arizona, I would always watch the Cubs games just waiting for Funhouse to start. Did you enjoy when Harry would have, like, his net to catch foul balls? Yes, I did. So, yeah, uh, as we were saying, John Bowman was played by John Caponera. I have a character side here from an article here. John Bowman is a union guy, a wry but well-intentioned Archie Bunker type who has a simple job at a warehouse supervisor on Chicago's South Side and a wife and three kids. And also, again, notice that John Carpenero is playing a character named John Bowman. They have the same first name. It's the Tony Danza situation. He's not the only character on this show where that's going to happen. We'll get to that in a second. Well, part of it is that this character, John Bowman, was made from John Caponera's comedies because this was supposed to be NBC's answer to Home Improvement on ABC. We'll get to that later. I got stuff to say. You're not wrong, but I got stuff to say. John Caponera, stand-up comedian. Big break came in 1985 when he appeared on Star Search. Do you know who he lost to? Don't spoil it if you're going to say Drew Carey. Who did he lose to? Jenny Jones. <laughs> wow. Well, that's not the only show Jenny Jones was a big winner on. Isn't that right, Wandy? Listen here, you punk. Don't drag me into this. I know what you're doing. Don't antagonize me. It's still the holiday season, technically. Look, Wavy. Do you like your Budweiser? Or are you a Cub fan and a Bud man? Don't give me the Robert Sala dead eye look again, whammy. John Caponera actually is still active on the comedy circuit. And he comes to Cleveland uh, quite a bit. And I really want to go see him, not just for his comedy, not just for him to dredge up an impression of a, a baseball announcer that's been deceased for 25 years, but I just want to go to the man and be like, John, I love you on the good life. Shake my hand. I'm never going to wash this hand again. Next up is his wife, Maureen Bowman, played by Eve Gordon. She's had a couple of roles uh, in the, the recent past. Nothing really big. Honey, we shrunk ourselves. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was the uh, made-for-video threequel of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. She played Diane Thornsky. I figured as much. That's what I'm just saying. She hasn't really done anything big since 
1994, it seems. Uh, I see four episodes of American Horror Story. Two episodes of, oh, hey, Greg, since we just talked about Tony Schlub's career, two episodes of Monk. Oh, even better. Seven episodes of Felicity. Oh, Carrie Russell and Tony Shalhoub she's been on the show with? That's great. And Amy Jo Johnson. Are we going to forget Amy Jo Johnson? Look, you can have Amy Jo Johnson. I'll take Carrie Russell. Thank you very much. Apologies to Joe Van Ginkle if you're listening. Playing John Bowman's co-worker at the warehouse, a gentleman by the name of Drew Clark. I mentioned the Tony Danza effect with the names. It's true here, too. Drew Clark is played by not necessarily an unknown at this point, but give him a year or two. Drew Carey. And really, watching this show in preparation for this episode, I see a lot of Drew Carey from the Drew Carey show in Drew Carey on The Good Life. And again, there's connections there. We're not going to get to the connections just yet. Stay tuned. Playing John's son, Paul Bowman, is Jake Patelis. He really has not done much of anything recently. Three episodes of George and Leo. Uh, hasn't done anything since 2000. And we may have talked about him in the past because he was on two episodes of Mego. I can't believe I'm mentioning Mego again. Playing the daughter, Melissa Bowman, in this show is Shay Astar. She played August on 24 episodes of Third Rock from the Sun. Little Tommy's girlfriend. Is that who she is? Okay. Yeah, she's uh, Tommy Solomon's girlfriend. Oh, yeah, I remember her on Third Rock. You know where I remember her from? That episode of TNG where that young little girl had an imaginary friend. Shay Astor played the imaginary friend. Oh, so was it kind of like on uh, Space Cases with Susie? With uh, Jewel State and Becky Herps? Yes. Yeah. It was. Oh, okay. And since we're talking about little Tommy's girlfriend, he's 42 years old now, just to make oh. us all feel old. Oh, well, it's only off by two or three years for me, so. He's only a year younger than I am. Where's my Geritol? Does anybody have any Anison? Shut up and give me a Metamucil shake. <laughs> hey, yet another kid, Bob Bowman. This is actually a name, and Greg actually, before the show, said, I did not know this person was in this show. Played by Justin Burfield, Reese from Malcolm in the Middle, and Ross Malloy on Unhappily Ever After for 100, 100 episodes. I didn't know Unhappily Ever After lasted 100 episodes. It did. It did last 100 episodes. I thought it got close to that. I didn't know it hit 100. Okay. So, yeah, you got Reese in this. Oh. And uh, little Reese. I mean, you could tell, obviously, he's a little kid, but you look at the face, it's like, yeah, that's Reese. He's going to get into shenanigans with Brian Cranston and Frankie Muniz in, like, six years. Look, everyone knows that show is all about Dewey. He was the real star of Malcolm in the Middle. Dewey was underrated. I will give you that. I really think it was all about Malcolm, but Dewey was, like, a close second. Dewey was the Maggie Simpson of the cast. 
All right, one more name, and this is a coworker, Tommy Bartlett, played by Monty Hoffman. Chico has his hand up. I will acknowledge him. Coach Sonsky from Saved by the Bell. I'll take your word for it. I, I don't know what else to say. You know the wrestling episode? He's the wrestling coach. Oh, I remember the wrestling episode of Saved by the Bell. You taught him the full Nelson. You taught him the half Nelson. Maybe you should teach him the Willie Nelson. Was this just an excuse to get Mario Lopez into spandex for the girls? Yes, it was. Figured. Now that we have the particulars of this series out of the way, I'm going to hand the reins over to Chico as he gives us an episode guide. And again, thanks to the fine folks at the Internet Movie Database and EpGuides.com and TV Maze for filling in the gaps that apparently each other have. Episode one. Paul dates a Buddhist. Oh, God. Warehouse manager and family man John Bowman discovers his son Paul is dating a Buddhist and is planning to convert. Playing said Buddhist, lady by the name of Leela, is Dave Choden, who is on future entry Uncle Buck. Not the 2000s version, the 1990s version. With, with Kevin, Kevin Me- Meany. Yes, Kevin Meany. I remember that very well, the 1990 Uncle Buck with Kevin Meany. Should we apologize? It's probably better than the one with Mike Epps, but that's not saying much. Fair point. And to prove that there are no small roles, only small actors, in the role of a video clerk, a pre-fame, pre-Sabrina the Teenage Witch even, Paul Feig. I thought when you said small, I was thinking, oh my god. And then I realized, oh no, Billy Barty's probably dead at this point. Very much so. 1994, Billy Barty dead? I think he's dead, isn't he? 1994? 2000. Oh, well that could have been great. You could have had Billy Barty play like a little person video clerk. Well, he runs out short films. Take care, everybody. Now, I watched this episode, Paul Dates a Buddhist. I am a Buddhist. I've grown up in the faith. I am still a Buddhist. I watched this episode, and I'm wondering, Jeff Martin, Kevin Curran, and Suzanne Martin, they created the show. They also wrote this episode. Did they, in fact, consult a Buddhist before writing this episode? No. Because they like to harp on all of the really, really different points and all of the bad points and my takeaway from this is like it's different different is bad you stay where you are because that's good and i'm thinking to myself this just spits in the face of everything i've ever been taught probably why i sort of tuned out after the first episode but i did watch episodes in preparation for this podcast Again, we're going to have a little argument later as to the merits of the show, and I think Chico stated his case with just the first episode. Maybe future episodes change his mind a little bit, but we'll get to that later. Episode two, Chico. Episode two. Maureen's play. John acts on his fears after mistaking the symbolism in the play that Maureen writes. And playing an actress in this play... 
Laura Innes from ER. So again, talk about another person that's a year and a half, two years away from maybe not superstardom, but a regular gig. Episode three, The Pilot. This was actually the filmed pilot that got the show on the air. NBC aired it as episode three. John is let down after he puts his son to work at the warehouse. That's it? That's it. Just a pilot. It probably wasn't even intended to be aired. Definitely not intended to be aired as episode number three. Maybe it was so bad they didn't want to air it as episode number one. Shoulder shrug here. Episode four. John hurts his leg. Or Tales from the Crip. Oh, jeez! John is upset to learn that he must wear a cast for 10 weeks after he hurts his leg while coaching T-ball. What? How do you hurt your leg coaching T-ball? Probably wanted to illustrate a point and got way too into it. Hi! I hurt my leg coaching T-ball! Okay, Mr. Carey, that's fine. Nobody else could see John Cabanera doing Harry Carey getting injured coaching T-Ball? Okay. But hey, we have a voice in this episode as himself, legendary Adam West. Episode 5, The Statue. John and Drew accidentally damage an expensive statue at their boss's house. That would be the first uh-oh of 2024, wouldn't it? Well, it depends on what part of the statue was damaged. Yeah, it could have been like that statue of the Goonies where it's, uh, you know, what broke off. I'm glad he said that and not me. Now I should note, what day did this episode air? This episode aired January 30th, 1994. In fact, right after NBC's coverage of Super Bowl 28. Now, as far as shows that premiered after a Bills Cowboys Super Bowl on NBC, Homicide Life on the Street stands the test of time more. Rest in peace, Andre Brower. Also that night, along with this episode of The Good Life, there was an episode of the John Larroquette show that aired. Again, one of the sort of new kids on the block for NBC. And obviously, as I mentioned earlier, it had legs. It ran for over three seasons. Ran for, I think, somewhere in the range of 80 episodes. So it wasn't half bad. And it airs now on Rewind TV. Episode 6, Calendar Girl. John, Drew, and Tommy take Paul along to see a calendar girl as part of their annual celebration of manhood. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, this is something that can't air in 2024. Couldn't air in 2014. Probably even couldn't get away with it in 2004. Barely got away with it in 1994. Playing the role of said calendar girl, a lady by the name of April, is an actress by the name of Sherry Rose, who is best known as one of the Black Scorpions Rogues Gallery of Villains, if you remember that show. 
Professor Ursula Undershaft, a.k.a. Aftershock. <laughs> Wait a second. Say it again. Yeah, say the last name again, because Greg and I are... No, the whole family. name. Professor... <laughs> oh, f*** me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Professor <laughs> Ursula... I am a professional. A professional. Professor Ursula Undershaft. <laughs> A.K.A. Aftershock. That sounds like something yes, from a Austin Powers movie. So wait, the calendar girl was April? Yes. Was her cover photo like her in a yellow jumpsuit? I don't know. No, that's a joke because that's a joke to April O'Neil. I want to go back to the whole understaff or under yeah. un, under under set well understaff understaff. <laughs> She's under something that's clearly hard, and Richard Roundtree didn't see that coming. I'm sorry. Good night, everybody. <laughs> okay, I, I gotta see if I can search this without like setting off all sorts of alarms. Ursula Undershaft. Good. God, oh my gosh, where's my heart medication? <laughs> Wait, oh, I got to look this up now. Hold on a second. My heart rate just went up. You're not ready, Greg. You're too young. What's oh no, up? I think he's perfectly fine in terms of age. Okay, what's the name again? Ursula, Ursula Undershaft. You have to pay attention. Cherry Rose is a very attractive woman. Middle of the run, episode seven. She shoots, she scores. Maureen has trouble directing a public service announcement when the commercial star turns out to be an obnoxious bigot. This is when the show got it back for me. Episode eight. John takes out Melissa. Melissa uses a father-daughter date with John to rendezvous with a guy she has a crush on. And we've got Paul Feig in this episode again, but now instead of being a music clerk, he's a waiter. And playing the role of the guy she has a crush on, a man by the name of David Richard Lee Jackson, known for 78 episodes of Saved by the Bell, the new class... And one episode of Power Rangers. You sound disappointed about that one episode of Power Rangers. It was a disappointing episode. And actually, I saw this episode, uh, among uh, others. I saw the whole episode. This is where I drew a lot of the parallels that I'm going to talk about later on. I thought this was a absolutely funny episode. Now, I see Chico's nodding his head. I'm guessing he saw this as well, possibly. Yes. Yes, I did. Quality episode, would you agree? Very much so. Hey. Not as quality as this one, though. Oh. Episode 9, John Fights the System. John challenges a littering citation of $12.50, mind you. But the judge tells him he's wasting the court's time. Playing the judge in this episode? William Shallert. In case you don't know who William Shallard is, he played Patty Duke's dad on the Patty Duke show. Well, not just Patty Duke, but also Kathy. Because they're cousins, identical cousins. 
he also played Gidget's dad in the new Gidget. Ha! <laughs> the new Gidget! Because that's what everybody was clamoring for in 1986 or 87. Another Gidget. They got us the new monkeys. Now let's get new Gidget. Carol Richmond was my five-year-old crush. Not gonna lie. Well, don't forget, we talked about... Who was it? The guy that played Moondoggy, was it, on uh, the Dean new Butler. You don't even remember the name. I just called him Moondoggy. I have those memories, Mike. That's why I was on the Jeopardy. No. <laughs> Episode... yeah, because you remembered Moondoggy. Right. <laughs> You're like, if there's going to be a clue about Dean Butler, I got it. I'm going to win this thing. <laughs> Episode 10. Bob's field trip. John works overtime to think of ways to explain his boring job to Bob's class during their visit. I work at middle management. That's my line. Why does this sound sort of vaguely similar to the Simpsons episode where they go to the box factory and Bart just gets so bored and he goes to the uh, Rusty Studios across the street and comes uh, the I didn't do it kid? Sounds like the same type of thing. We're going to go visit a lock warehouse. Yay. We're going to visit a cardboard box factory. Yay. Interestingly enough, that episode, Bart Gets Famous, aired on February 3rd, 1994, one and a half months before this one. So Simpsons did it first. Simpsons did it first. Episode 11, Melissa the Thief. When Melissa shoplifts some cosmetics, John makes up a punishment to fit the crime. Playing the role of Jennifer is Taylor Fry, one of the regulars on, I don't even know if we should cover it, Kirk. No! But perhaps her two best roles, one, as Lucy McLean in Die Hard, and two, as Amy Potter in 17 episodes of Get a Life. And you know how much we love Get a Life around these parts. And as Mr. Humphreys, Philip Baker Hall, that Greg, I know you and I talked about him before, because he was in the Dr. Moo. The Dr. Moo. <laughs> Dr. Moo? Is this no, let's stay in. The Dr. Moo! Yeah, he's a Time Lord, but he's also a cow. He travels in a TARDIS that's made out of four stomachs. <laughs> Wait, if it was a Time Lord cow, wouldn't that be eight stomachs? And joke's on me, he wasn't even in the Doctor Who movie. It was Michael David Sims. Oh, darn. Are you telling me that in the Dr. Moo movie, he's not going to fight the Baleks? Wait, I love this idea. Dr. Moo with a missile silo that's bigger on the inside, which is saying a lot because we all know those missile silos are really big. So we got Fat Man 66. We came up with Bitch last week instead of Fish. And now we have Dr. Moo. Okay, we're slowly developing our own network here, guys. Not really great shows, but we're slowly developing a good stable of shows. With all due respect, no pun there. Stable, Dr. Moo. 
No, we're creating the It Was a Thing on TV television universe because we created Fat Man 66 last year. We now have Bitch. And now we got Dr. Moo. Hold on. Would the theme song to Bitch be, I'm a bitch, I'm a mother, I'm a child. I actually did find something that uh, Philip Baker Hall was in, and we covered this episode. Why didn't I remember it? He was old Jimmy Pritchard in Second Chance. Which one? We've covered three of them. The one with the Frankenstein monster. 2016, okay. Oh, I was hoping that he was in the Second Chance 1987 show. That's why I asked. Episode 12. Okay, hold on. I'm still stuck on Dr. Moo. I'm just imagining, like, Tom Baker playing a cow with that big scarf wrapped around his neck. Okay, it's just me. Episode 12. Episode 12. The mother-in-law. John takes his mother-in-law to a baseball game, but the two still don't hit it off. I watched this episode, and this is where I was like, oh, God, this is like, Somebody wrote an episode centering around a mother-in-law at a baseball game, unironically. We got names in this episode. We got at least three quality names. We'll start off with Phyllis, who I'm guessing is the mother-in-law. And yeah, looking at this cast, I'm pretty sure the mother-in-law is Phyllis. And Phyllis is played by Betty Garrett. She played Irene Lorenzo on All the Family. She's one of those people, when you see her, you know exactly who she is. She's done so much stuff over the years, hasn't been with us for about 12, 13 years. But, hey, this is the first time I'm going to make this claim uh, in 2024. She had a card in Americana. That didn't get quite the reaction that I was expecting. She had a card in Americana. Wow. There you go. And actually, where you really would remember her, I said all in the family, she played Edna Babish on Laverne and Shirley, 97 episodes. Like I said, you see the face, you could just point right to Laverne and Shirley. A well-known name in 70s television. But not the only name we have here. Playing the voice of a policeman, so I'm guessing not on camera, somebody we've talked about quite a bit recently, Neil Ross. And, of course, when we say Neil Ross, we talk about... <laughs> you don't look like a Transformer to me. Again, Whammy, stop giving me the Robert Solid dead eyes. I don't want that. Neil Ross is known for three things, primarily. Transformers, Voltron, press your luck. A third name. Doing a Jack Nicholas voiceover? Okay. 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 Chico's going to fill in some gaps here. Okay. I can explain this. At the end of the episode, while the credits were rolling, they were watching Elvis and Jack Nicholas in a buddy cop show. Neil Ross was playing Elvis. This guy was playing Jack Nicholas. The golfer? The golfer. Why would Elvis and Jack Nicholas, the golfer, be? Together. I don't know. Best golfing related end sequence since Lee Carvalho's putting challenge, I guess. But anyhow, this got even weirder now that Chico said that. So 
Elvis as a policeman and Jack Nicholas are in a buddy cop show. Yeah. The voice of Jack Nicholas, the cop in this ending, as weird as it sounds, done by Craig Shoemaker, another well-known comedian. I don't know if he's still on the circuit or whatnot, but where some people might remember him is he hosted My Generation on VH1, the game show that had like different graduating classes of high schools competing uh, in like a pop culture quiz about 25 years ago. Yeah, I remember that. Final episode, John's new assistant. Drew runs a background check on John's new assistant while a love-struck Tommy also checks her out. Yeah, this is another one that doesn't fly in 2024, I fear. Now, wait a second. John Bowman's married. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <sighs> Tommy's checking her out. Well, th- knowing Tommy from the episodes I saw, I'm not surprised at all that Tommy's checking her out. Not one iota. So, playing John's new assistant... A lady by the name of Mary Lou Murray. That's not her real name. You have to watch the episode to get that. But playing Mary Lou Murray, the overtly chipper Becky Thayer. She's done everything under the sun, but she's best known as one of the voices on the Oblongs. I'm going to bring that up in a little bit now that you say that. This might be one of the first times we've talked about the Oblongs, and now we're going to make two mentions of it in the same episode. She was also in 10 episodes of Mr. Show with Bob and David. I'm surprised we haven't brought that up before. So she moved to get away from her jerk of a boyfriend, guy by the name of Joe, played by Robert Clohesse of Future Entry, Just One of the Boys. And that's the show. As I said earlier, Chico and I had a little discussion before the episode about the merits and maybe where this show sort of fell off. And Chico had an observation about why the show did fail in a negative light. And I had maybe a more optimistic tone in terms of what comes down the line in about a year, year and a half. So Chico, let the the folks know what issues you had. Maybe not issues, but uh, your criticisms. My criticisms are these. This show is stacked with so much talent. I mean, this was a hotbed for comedic and dramatic talent. But it seems like the show relied way too much on comedic sitcom tropes. It's like it did absolutely nothing to stand itself apart from any other family sitcom that was out there. And it looks like they were trying, at least NBC and the writers were trying to create their very own home improvement clone. And I think the audiences at the time at least, were way too hip to that. It's like they were writing beneath the level of talent that was in the room, I thought. Mike, time's yours. 
They see, I'm going to disagree. I saw a couple of the episodes and I thought it was clever. I totally get your comparison with home improvement. I don't think they were aiming for that. I think they're aiming for something again, about a year, year and a half later. And when I say it, it may suddenly all make sense. I think if you look at this, this was a very rough version of the Drew Carey show. I think when you take a look at the Drew Carey show versus the good life, you have a couple of changes. First, Drew really didn't have a family life. Well, he didn't really have a family per se until I think near the end of the series. It was more about his work life, but also his life with his friends at home, but you know, also at the, the Warsaw Tavern and whatnot. But also, again, you, you take Drew Carey from the supplemental cast, the supporting cast, and you make him the star now. Not to say Drew Carey wasn't the star of The Good Life. Really, he wasn't. I would say him and John Caponera probably shared twin billing there. But you took Drew Carey from the sidekick role and put him in the primary role. And you then had a show with much similar humor, I think, that ran for nine seasons, eight seasons. So I do see a lot of the Drew Carey show in The Good Life. And one name that's common between The Drew Carey Show and The Good Life is Bruce Helford, who created The Drew Carey Show. So I really think you have like a genesis here. This is sort of like The Drew Carey Show, maybe not fully cooked. Again, give it another year year and a half in the oven, and then even maybe another year or two beyond that, because remember, Drew Carey show didn't really set the world on fire the first season or two, and then you've got a bona fide hit come 1997, 1998. And since we mentioned Bruce Helford, he was also an executive producer on, you just mentioned it a few minutes ago, the Oblongs. So now everything's sort of falling in place here. The Oblongs, and Drew Carey show and Good Life. So you can sort of uh, see a progression here. Bruce Helford went from maybe a marginal show, we'll say, to a really good show. And then he went to a cartoon on uh, WB or UPN or wherever it was. And really, that wasn't all that good. But also, it was a cartoon on WB or UPN. So it's not going to really succeed all that much. But the names on this show, like I said, you had Bruce Helford, you had Kevin Curran, who was known from The Simpsons, Late Night with David Letterman. He produced, I think, three or four seasons of Married with Children. A definite known entity, as it were. And this is, again, Married with Children, 90 to 93. That was like peak Married with Children, in my opinion. So you didn't have, like, Total nobody's running the show. You had quality people in front of the camera, but also behind the scenes. Well, if anybody knows or has a good idea as to what happened with the show, it would be John Caponera himself. He said as much in a news press article 
from 1994, which reads, We just went on the air in January, and the powers that be did nothing to help us get started. They didn't give us a comedy lead-in like Seinfeld, but they put us up against the top 10 sitcom Full House. And then they ran half the shows, took us off for the Olympics, and brought us back in a different time slot. How were we supposed to get the show going? It seems like they did everything in their power to screw things up. I know the show wasn't canceled because of its actors. It was a good show and very funny. It failed because NBC didn't stay with it long enough. To your point, Mr. Caponera, I have the schedule in my hands right here. Now, NBC Tuesday, because we are in between the era dominated by NBC Thursday, led by Mr. Black, and NBC Thursday, dominated by six friends from New York. Here we have NBC Tuesday, which was a work in progress. We started out the fall with Saved by the Bell of College Years, getting by second season after being acquired from ABC. That's on the list. The John Larroquette Show and something called The Second Half. It was created and starring John Mendoza. I don't know who he is, or if I do, I don't remember him. But you do know the co-star, Wayne Knight. Newman. And the other co-star, Mindy Cohn. Oh. And then you ended the night with Dateline. We're not even going to worry about that. So in the middle of the winter, we have Getting By, Getting the Axe, and The Good Life going in its spot, the second half going on hiatus in favor of Cafe American with Valerie Bertinelli. The Good Life was actually in a prime position to succeed. It was up against Phenom on ABC, Rock on Fox, and the second half of Rescue 911. Like John Caponera said, they pull it for the Olympics, they cancel Safe by the Bell the College years, and The Good Life slips into that spot. So you have The Good Life followed by the second half and an hour of the John Larroquette show. This is where the wheels fall off because The Good Life was up against South Central on Fox. Well, half of it. The other half was uh, Monty with Henry Winkler. The first half of Rescue 911 and the aforementioned Full House. Penultimate season of Full House, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, its last season was 94-95. So maybe if the schedule is a little different, it would have had a chance? Maybe. Because that Tuesday night on NBC, that was a work, let me tell you. And NBC was happy enough to let the show run out all of its 13 episodes and let it go. It was never released on home video, but you can watch most of the episodes on YouTube unofficially. Another unofficial way you can watch it is through the Internet Archive. It does appear all 13 episodes are there. But again, as I said earlier, give it about a year and a half. Some of the people that worked on The Good Life are going to make it to Drew Carey. Give it a little time. 
it's an acquired taste. I'll admit it. The first season was okay, but it really got into its groove in like the second or third season. But I see those parallels there. And Drew Carey, and I'm not going to talk bad about uh, a guy from old Brooklyn, a good kid from Cleveland, Rhodes High School graduate, U.S. Marine, Semper Fi, just needed a little bit of time, and he just needed to find that one big break. I mean, he's had big breaks. He went on Star Search, and and uh, he uh, really killed it on uh, on Carson back in the late 80s. But in terms of sitcoms, in terms of television, give him, again, about a year and a half. There's his big break. And really, he's been doing amazing work wherever he's been for almost the last 30 years. Drew Carey Show, Whose Line, Price is Right. Guys stay busy. I mean, you got to give him that. He's been pretty much uh, working for like almost every uh, season for the last 30 years, minus probably 06, 07 before he got uh, Power of 10. But in the end, as much as a good life, may be beloved around here, at least in my heart, in my mind. NBC just put it up against the Wolves, and it didn't stand a chance against a powerhouse ABC lineup. And also, Rescue 911. We got to give some props to Shatner. So in the end, The Good Life, it sadly was just a thing on TV. Now I'm going to cry. I love this show so much. So that does it on a show that happened 30 years ago this week. Let's go to a show that happened 40 years ago this week. Y'all know what time it is. It's time for this weekend match game. Hollywood Square. Our history. I know Greg has been waiting for a long time for this episode. We've sort of had a bit of a crescendo the last couple of weeks. We are now talking about first full week of 1984. Two weeks ago, we had a great week, including the holiday episode, the Christmas episode. And also we had a little coma from Tom Poston. And then last week we had the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, week of Leave it to Beaver with Gallagher. And now I think we sort of hit the peak. This is the pinnacle here. First week of January of 1984, we have Dorothy Lyman from Mama's Family, Dick Martin, Arsenio Hall, Alison Arngrim again, Vic Dunlop, David Ruprecht, who would have been on Real People at this point, Nathan Cook, and Christy Claridge. There's a couple of reasons this week is so good. First, we have a contestant who went on to much bigger things in the 90s and beyond. There's a gentleman by the name of Butch Hartman. Where you'd know him from, he's basically like the godfather of Nickelodeon cartoons, not called SpongeBob SquarePants. He did the Fairly Odd Parents. He did, what else did he do? Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, Danny Phantom, I Am Weasel, Cow and Chicken, Johnny Bravo, and previous entry, Police Academy. And we should note, his last name is the inspiration for the character of Dr. Hartman on Family Guy. Butch Hartman, 
He was on for a total of three episodes, and he had bad luck. First episode he was on, he got the 30 and was playing for $30,000 with Christy Claridge and bombed that. And then the second episode he was on, he only had 250 in the uh, super match. But again, he hit the 30. I forget with whom. But he was playing for $7,500, and he missed that. So he's the first person to hit the 30 twice and bomb on the 30 twice. But again, there's so many other reasons we love this week. Christy Claridge, I think Greg has stuff to say, so I'm going to just hand the mic over to him. Well, Christy Claridge is the ex-sister-in-law of the Hulkster brother. And this is important because 40 years ago, this week, around this same time, the Hulkster made his return to the World Wrestling Federation. And later this month, in Madison Square Garden, he's going to be taking on Shiki Baby Bubba for the WWF Championship. And let's just say, a certain, uh, what do you say, a certain mania is about to start that's going to be spreading all across the country. It's going to be like a fever. Everyone's going to be catching this all of a sudden. I know exactly what you mean. I totally, totally agree with you on that. Also, regarding Butch Hartman, I think one of our favorite, at least my favorite, things that came out of Match Game Hollywood Squares was from this week with Vic Dunlop. Because after about the second episode, it seemed like any time Butch Hartman picked Vic Dunlop, Vic Dunlop would say, Butchie! Hey, Butchie! Butchie! And the thing is, Vic Dunlop, yes, he was a pretty big comedian back in the day, literally and physically. But just 40 years later, I mean, he's probably like a, a side note, but just anytime he like, talked with Butchie, Hey, Butchie! Yeah, Butchie! Just one of those amazing things. Uh, also, we should add, for the second week in a row, nobody won the head-to-head match. So there's been a nine-episode dry streak at this point, because the last win was $1,000 on the Christmas episode, or the December 23rd episode, with a post-coma composted. Now, I should note, there's only four episodes this week, and there's a reason why there's only four episodes this week. Because NBC, on January 2nd, would have been airing the college football ball games, because January 1st fell on a Sunday, and NFL was going on, so that's why all the ball games fell on the second. That's it for this week. Let's wrap up the show. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Please remember you can go to our website at itwasathingontv.com where you can listen to the 440, 440 previous episodes. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. That preceded this one. We've got all sorts of great stuff there, including bonuses like mini shows, live shows, extended versions of previous episodes, the instant reaction to the pop tots, the pop tots. I got a bust in the pop tots bowl. The instant reaction to the pop tarts bowl might be one of the greatest things we've ever done. Dead serious. That was something we all wanted to talk about. And that was a good 25 minute show. Also, remember, we're on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon over at It Was The Thing on TV. Except don't forget, at Facebook, we're at It Was The Thing on TV podcast. 
And also remember, if you want to follow us on Mastodon, you need to search for us at, it was a thing on TV, at tvwatch.party. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Audible, Spotify, Google Podcasts, even though that's going away in April. We're everywhere, it seems. And also, don't forget, we're on YouTube, speaking of Google Podcasts, uh, where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit that notification bell to stay informed of all future uploads on the channel, including what's coming up on the next episode. The next episode, we're going to talk about a show I think is absolutely hilarious. I think the only reason this show failed is it came out three years too late. The cast was perfectly fine. The writing was perfectly fine. Everything about it was perfectly fine, except I think the timing is what killed it. And oddly enough, maybe the timing is what killed the good life. So maybe a little bit of a parallel there. So we're going to talk about that on Thursday right here at It Was a Thing on TV. Again, Happy New Year to you. Thank you for listening. And we'll catch you with that new episode on Thursday. Wow!